This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our focus, the U.S. and Europe and America's role with NATO. In his first major State Department speech since last month's inauguration, President Joe Biden outlining his agenda, his goals for America's military and our diplomats. America and alliances are our greatest asset. And leading with diplomacy means standing shoulder to shoulder with our allies and key partners once again. By leading with diplomacy, we must also mean engaging our adversaries and our competitors diplomatically, where it's in our interest and advance the security of the American people. That from President Biden at the State Department. So let's turn our attention to NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was, of course, the direct result of World War II, officially formed back in 1949 with 12 original members. Today, there are 30. Here is how the Universal Newsreel covered the organization's formation. On April 4, 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed by Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Italy, Portugal, the United Kingdom, Iceland, Canada, and the United States. This union of 12 nations became known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or more simply, NATO. They were sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. That from 1949, two years later in his role as the first Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, there was this from General Dwight Eisenhower. Today, another significant step was taken in this process of ensuring our collective security. This headquarters, formally and officially, assumed operational control and command of all forces allocated by our several countries to the defense of Europe. And, of course, one year later, in 1952, General Eisenhower would be elected as our 34th president. And so with that background, we turn to Daniel Kochis. He is a senior policy analyst on European affairs for the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, part of the Heritage Foundation. And I want to begin with a piece that you wrote last August that really summarizes what we want to talk about for the next uh, 25 minutes. You said getting to understand the balance of NATO requires an understanding of where the alliance has been, where it is now, and where it is headed. So let's take all three points one at a time. First, what is it that we need to know that we should understand about NATO's organization back in the late 1940s? Well, thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure to talk to you and the audience about what I think is just such an important topic, an evergreen topic for the United States. You know, NATO really has done more than any other multilateral organization to promote democracy, peace, security in Europe, um, and really the broader transatlantic community. And this is something that benefits the U.S., it benefits Europe. I think sometimes there's a a misunderstanding that um, NATO and the European Union sort of grew up side by side. But really it was the, the security umbrella that was provided by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization that allowed all these other sort of multilateral organizations that are now in place to to spring up and to grow in safety. Uh, And so, you know, when NATO was created in 1949, the purpose really was a collective security organization. That still is its primary purpose today. But these were, of course, war-ravaged countries in in Western Europe. They were facing uh, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries, 
Uh, Germany, of course, was divided, and there was a real recognition that uh, not only could these countries not defend themselves against uh, Soviet aggression or concerted uh, aggression from uh, Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, but that they also needed sort of a security umbrella to rebuild their economies and become partners for the U.S. So that's where you had this this idea of Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, which was, uh, you know, one attack against one is an attack against all. Um, and so basically a guarantee that if um, there was an attack from East Germany and West Germany, that uh, the French, the, the British, the United States would be there uh, fighting alongside of it. And, of course, there was also sort of the nuclear component. Uh, NATO then and now um, was and is a, a nuclear alliance. And so really an extension of the U.S. nuclear deterrent to other countries in Europe that were um, U.S. allies. Can you explain the governing structure of NATO, essentially how it operates, and does one nation have more say over another? No, um, there is no, uh, no nation has one say um, necessarily over another. There is actually a, a council that meets, this is a council that meets at the heads of state. Um, there are lesser meetings that happen throughout the year. Defense ministers, foreign ministers come. But ultimately, it, it comes down to this, um, this council that is of each country sort of has its own vote. Um, and so, you know, for instance, if there's an, an aggression, any country can come and they can request that Article 5 uh, be invoked. That doesn't necessarily have to happen. Um, countries can, can choose whether or not uh, they believe that this, is, this meets the threshold, really, of an attack. And so, you know, some of the questions in recent years has really been over the cyber sphere, which now is, is sort of a NATO sphere uh, like any other um, over the past few years. But there's a question of sort of what is that benchmark where an uh, in, in aggression against the country, which are happening all the time, right? These cyber attacks from, from Russia, from China, from Iran, from other actors. What is the threshold that meets sort of, a, you know, an Article 5 uh, attack? And so, you know, there's only been a few instances in NATO's uh, history where Article 5 has been triggered. The first one was the 9-11 uh, attacks against the United States. And so you had NATO uh, AWACS and airborne uh, warning and control uh, systems airplanes uh, flying over the United States. For instance, these are aircraft that were European aircraft and helping sort of um, patrol uh, U.S. skies after 9-11. So that's just one instance. There is, of course, a, a supreme allied commander. There are military structures underneath the, the political structures. Um, and so you have uh, military command and control structures in Europe, in case of, of sort of large-scale warfare, you can mobilize troops quickly and sort of put these multinational um, groupings together in, in some sort of cohesive way. I'm going to go back to the words of Lord Hastings Ismay. He, of course, was NATO's first secretary general, and he said, quote, The goal of NATO to keep the Soviet Union out, Americans in, and Germany down. Explain what he was referring to. Well, so... You know, transatlantic security, I think, then and now, uh, Europeans recognize it, and I think most Americans do, really doesn't work without the United States. There has to be this transatlantic bridge with a solid footing on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and so that's, that's the idea of it, that the United States needs to be involved for there to really be collective deterrence, um, which has any sort of credibility. And that's still true today, and, and we have this discussion, of course, about defense spending, and, and all of these things really come down to the reality that the United States can and should and really needs to be remain engaged in, in the European security sphere. The second, of course, is about keeping the Russians out. At the time, it was the Soviet Union. Um, but, you know, deterring Russia, uh, that 
is then uh, and and is now really the the main existential threat to Europe. There's there's of course threat from non-state actors, uh, from terror attacks. There's threats from uh, Iran in terms of um, cyber attacks and, and potentially missile strike. There's threats, of course, from China, which are evolving. But really, the existential threat for many countries in Europe is is and remains from Russia. And then there was, of course, at the time, the question of Germany. Germany um, was was you know demilitarized. Uh, there was the period of denazification after World War II. And so there was a fear for many countries in Europe, uh, in particular from the, from the French, from the Belgians, from the Dutch, and, and to some degree from the British, that a, a united Germany would pose really sort of this uh, potential military threat again in the future. And so there was this desire uh, to have some sort of structure to ensure that, that, that Germany never again became a military threat to its neighbors. Um, and that worked for a long time. And there was there was this debate after the end of the Cold War about what to do, um, you know, about Germany. Do do you allow for reunification? And so there was there was even a disagreement, for instance, amongst large NATO allies. The United States under George H. W. Bush was in support uh, of German reunification. Um, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher um, was actually opposed to it, and so there was a disagreement about that. Of course, Germany did reunify and and became not a uh, military power, but it became an economic power uh, of the first order. And so we're still sort of dealing with the implications of, you know, Germany's history, really. Now it's been uh, 70 odd years. And so there's, there's this idea of, well, what is, what is Germany's role um, in NATO today? Uh, and so this, this really remains a question that we're grappling with. I think a lot of people in the United States and in some other um, corners of NATO would like to see Germany take on a larger security role, the Germans themselves are, are very reticent to do so. And, and some countries, I think, still harbor some concerns, some historical concerns, and are having a hard time getting over that. We're talking with Daniel Coaches. He is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And, of course, a key component of security in Europe has been the presence of U.S. troops. During the, the height of the Cold War, we saw as many as 300,000 armed forces across Europe, most of them in Germany. What are we seeing today? So today we have about 68,000 active duty, permanently stationed U.S. forces in Europe. We have a smaller contingent of rotational forces, which come from the United States uh, for generally back-to-back rotations. So we have uh, an Arbor Brigade combat team and also an Aviation Brigade uh, team, as well as a logistical team, which which come for about nine-month rotations through Europe. But our permanent station troops are about 68,000. They're spread out. Germany still remains really the heartland of, of U.S. presence in Europe, followed by Italy. And so, you know, there's still, I think, is this idea that at the end of the Cold War, there was this peace dividend uh, for countries in Europe and also for the United States. Uh, there was the end of history. This was the mindset. There really was no existential threat anymore from Russia. There was kind of this uh, waywardness about what is the role of NATO. Um, and so does the U.S. still need to maintain troops and large garrisons in, in Europe anymore? And the conclusion was no. Uh, and so while the U.S. maintained many of its bases in Europe, a significant number of these were either closed or consolidated. And the number of troops were, were brought down significantly. And so in Europe, this this also happened to a lesser degree in terms of uh, defense spending was cut. The number of active duty troops that you kept on online were cut. The investments in 
um, planes, ships were, were significantly curtailed. And so that really cut down on the military capabilities of the alliance overall. And that was something that happened over the period of 20 years. And, and I think that we really didn't sort of see the implications of that um, until really the mid-2000s. Um, and we're still grappling with it today because now we have sort of this reconstituted existential threat in Russia to three Eastern European countries. And many of them don't have the capabilities in place in order to adequately deter uh, any sort of armed aggression from Russia. And so they're, they're trying to really play catch up. And that's sort of where we are today. Which is really the second part of your in-depth piece titled NATO into the 21st Century, available at heritage.org. So with regard to where we are now, let's just go back a few years ago when President George W. Bush, speaking at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, talked about NATO and America's role in the world. President Truman transformed our alliances to deal with new dangers. After World War II, he led the effort to form the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the first peacetime alliance in American history. NATO served as a military bulwark against communist aggression and helped give us a Europe that is now whole, free, and at peace. President Truman positioned U.S. forces to deal with new threats, despite enormous pressure to bring our troops home after World War II. He kept American forces in Germany to deter Soviet aggression and kept U.S. forces in Japan as a counterweight to communist China. That, of course, was nearly 15 years ago at West Point. So where are we today? So during the the early 2000s, NATO was retooled as sort of an out-of-area operations force. Um, And so fighting terrorism, this, of course, was the focus of the United States. And so the U.S. was able to bring on a large number of, of, of our allies you know, operations in Afghanistan under a NATO rubric, also in Iraq. And so you had um, things like that still still remain, for instance, as NATO's um, resolute support mission to train and equip Afghan security forces. Uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of, of allied troops died, um, you know, battling uh, extremists and terrorists in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And you know, in 2014, I think there was this sort of wake-up call when you had Russia's evasion of, of Ukraine, uh, legal annexation of Crimea, and there was all of a sudden this realization that we once again have uh, this existential threat on the borders of, of NATO. And so there was once again, I think, sort of a pivot back to um, sort of the, the raison d'etre, the, the original meeting of NATO, which was collective defense. And, and that's sort of, we're still completing that transition today from this out-of-air operations, uh, having complete control over uh, airspace of of the battlefield, uh, small arms uh, fire, uh, battling IEDs, to really sort of state-on-state, large-scale competition, Um, you know, once again having, uh, you know, naval maneuvers and and being concerned about Russian naval activities in places like the North Atlantic and the Eastern Mediterranean. These were things that for, you know, over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, weren't at the top of, of mind for, for many NATO planners. It was really, how do we get troops from, you know, the United States to the battlefield uh, and to Bora or what have you. And so we're still sort of completing that. NATO has done, I think, a pretty good job over the last, um, you know, five, ten, you know, seven years or so in sort of rebuilding its collective defense efforts. But, but we really are not um, to the point where I think many allies would be 
totally satisfied that they've sort of checked that box. Um, and so, you know, for even, you know, when you think about U.S. basing in Europe, you know, during the, the early 2000s, it was really about logistical hubs. So it was moving large numbers of, of U.S. troops uh, and equipment to the Middle East. And so you had places uh, like Lages Field, for instance, which is in the uh, Portuguese Azores, which had sort of was seen as no longer as relevant as it had once been during the Cold War. Um, it became a, a, a supply depot, as a, a large-scale fuel depot. Um, you think about uh, the U.S. hospital uh, in Germany, a longstuhl. This saved countless American lives because you'd have you'd be able to um, sort of bring them to a world-class medical facility at a much quicker pace than you would if you had to to send them back to the United States, and 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 that time was crucial, and it did save a lot of American lives. And so we're still, com- you know, completing this transition now. And, and NATO, I think, is in some ways still sort of finding itself after this period. And there's a lot of debate within the alliance about what its role should be in the 21st century, you know, in, in 2021. What is its role? How does it deal with the new challenges, the challenges of terrorism, the challenges of, of China, the cyber issues, the space issues? Um, and this is a debate that, that I think is ongoing and, um, you know, really is a robust debate within the alliance. Let me remind our listeners that our guest is a senior policy analyst on European affairs for the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. And as we heard at the top of the program, President Joe Biden outlining his foreign policy doctrine. But as you well know, in the last couple of years during the Trump administration, a lot of debate with uh, then President Trump saying that NATO needs to pay its fair share and, of course, plans to withdraw U.S. troops from Germany, as many as 10,000 troops. So explain what that was all about. So American presidents, both Republican and Democrats, have complained uh, really since the inception of the organization that uh, Europeans do not spend enough on defense. There's a, a famous quote from Dwight Eisenhower that uh, Europeans are trying to make a sucker out of Uncle Sam. And you, so you think about you know his role in really setting up um, NATO as the first Supreme Allied commander, saying something like that. It, it sounds like something that President Trump himself could have said. And so there was this, there's this um, mindset, I think, in the United States that these are large, wealthy countries with robust economies that have um, established welfare states, why are they not spending um, adequate number, um, adequate euros, uh, you know, on defense? And at some level, that's true. So in, in 2006, uh, the organization came up with these benchmarks um, to spend 2% of GDP on, on defense, and within that 2% of GDP to spend 20% of that on new equipment purchases and research and development. And many uh, NATO allies were, were not hitting those targets. In fact, only a few of them were. Um, and so today, in, in 2020, 10 of 30 countries, which includes the United States, was hitting its, its spending benchmarks. This is a significant improvement over a few years ago, where you just had four or five countries hitting the spending benchmarks. But still, quite a bit needs to be done. And then there was there's also this sort of side discussion about uh, the amount of money that the United States spends to maintain these large number of forces in, in Europe. Obviously, as we've talked about a little bit earlier in the discussion, it's it's many magnitudes lower than it was under the Cold War. But still, the United States does base large numbers of troops in Europe and maintains um, basing. There, the, the reality is that European countries actually help defray significantly the cost of that basing. So last year, for instance, the Germans uh, put about a billion dollars into 
uh, helping maintain uh, U.S. spacing um, in Europe. The Italians, the Belgians, the Dutch do the same. And it's, it's true for also for allies in uh, Asia, the Japanese and the Koreans really fund uh, most of the infrastructure and the basing needs there. And so if you were to move these troops back to the United States, um, President Trump, of course, announced plans to move about 6,400 troops from Europe back to the United States uh, over last summer. And these troops just don't melt away. They have to be housed somewhere in the United States. You have to build new barracks. You have to refit some other barracks. And that maintains a large cost. And so we already have, in in many countries in Europe, this um, well-oiled machine of, of infrastructure, of basing in place. And it, and it's, it's the cost of that is paid largely by our European allies. So I think that there is, there's a lot of uh, misnomers that go on in terms of, of sort of the spending debate within NATO. There is a, a point that uh, President Trump had that European countries need to make this a political decision to invest and, and really to live up to their treaty commitments. They are treaty obligated under the North Atlantic Treaty, Article 3, which talks about the need, the need to maintain adequate capabilities to defend yourself and defend other allies within the alliance. They're not meeting those obligations, and it's right to, to point that out. But there's a way to do that and to not allow that, I think, to sort of subsume all the other discussions about the, the value of, of NATO. Well, to that point, Daniel Coaches, this is what then Defense Secretary Mark Esper said last summer, an event that we covered for the C-SPAN networks sponsored by the Aspen Security Forum. We know well their invasion of Georgia, annexation of Crimea, they're occupying part of Ukraine. Uh, you know, they're, they're stirring trouble up in the Baltic. So, look, it, it's, it's focused the attention of NATO. Um, it's unfortunate we're in this situation, but we have to stand up and, uh, and deter them. We have to stand up to them. And that means uh, committing funding, committing troops, committing more capabilities to deterring Russian bad behavior um, uh, so, that, uh, so that there isn't conflict in Europe, so we can continue to defend those democracies that we count as our allies. And that's my commitment. You know, I, I served as a young officer in Italy as part of NATO, actually as part of the NATO Rapid Reaction Force. So I know the value of the alliance and I know the value is greater than the sum of the parts when you work together. So Russia has given us that focus, and we need to continue to, to kind of uh, to address them where, wherever we see them out, out there playing. From August of 2020, that was then Defense Secretary Mark Esper, which leads us to the final point of your piece, which is available at heritage.org. Where is NATO heading? This is from the official NATO website. Today, we face a much broader range of threats than in the past. To the east, Russia has become more assertive with the illegal annexation of Crimea and destabilization of eastern Ukraine, as well as its military buildup close to NATO's borders. To the south, the security situation in the Middle East and Africa has deteriorated, causing loss of life, fueling large-scale migration flows and inspiring terrorist attacks. NATO is responding by reinforcing its deterrence and defense posture as well as supporting international efforts to project stability and strengthen security outside NATO territory. We are also confronted with the spread of weapons of mass destruction, cyber attacks, and threats to energy supplies, as well as environmental challenges with security implications. That from the official NATO website. So, Daniel Kochis, as you hear that, your thoughts, your response. 
Well, my thoughts is that, you know, NATO remains extremely relevant to the United States and to our allies in Europe. It's it's a, a keen national security interest. I think that NATO really needs to get back to what it was created for, and that is collective defense of the member states. Uh, this means primarily uh, deterring Russia. Of course, there is much to be done here in terms of the Baltic theater, in terms of the Black Sea theater. And I also think a, a lesser theater for, for NATO's attention, but one that should get more and that's the Arctic. Um, Russia really, I think, has ramped up uh, its capabilities in the region, and that's going to be a contested sphere uh, over the next 30 years. And so NATO needs to sort of address those issues in terms of deterrence. There's also the question of how does NATO um, fit into this China picture? Uh, and that, I think, um, the, the, the answer, which oftentimes isn't that satisfying, is that there really isn't that much that NATO can do. The, the competencies to deal with a lot of the economic questions, a lot of the diplomatic questions around uh, China don't belong really in, in the NATO sphere. And you, you sort of set yourself up, I think, for failure if you expect too much from the alliance. There is um, some aspects, I think, of, of the China question in terms of access to ports, infrastructure, which do, cyber, which do factor into the NATO uh, discussion. But largely speaking, I think that this is outside. NATO needs to get back to basics and, and doing what it was set up to do. Um, and, and I hope that that is, that is somewhere that we can get uh, over the next few years. Look, NATO's last strategic concept was created in 2010. Think about how much has changed uh, in terms of our relationship with Russia, in terms of, of our relationship with our allies, uh, the rise of China. NATO needs to understand um, where it was and look forward to where it can be uh, but I do think it's going to remain relevant, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. One final point. There were 12 founding members, now 30, including North Macedonia. Would you expect that uh, if the founders came back today, they would see NATO pretty much as they envisioned it back in the late 1940s? I, I think in some ways they would, but they don't, wouldn't be surprised, I think, about how much NATO has expanded. It's, it's open to any member state that meets the qualifications, which largely means, uh, you know, any nation, I should say, which meets the qualifications, which largely means, you know, any European country that um, believes in freedom and is willing to, to live up to its Article Three commitments. And so NATO has expanded, and the Balkans, I think, are oftentimes seen as sort of the soft underbelly of Europe, for, um, for, you know, China, Russia, and, and frankly, even to, to a lesser extent, a NATO member, Turkey, to sort of wreak havoc. And so NATO has expanded to a lot of countries, most recently North Macedonia in the region. Uh, and that is going to contribute to st- stability. And that's also, I think, going to contribute eventually towards development of their economic prospects as well. Daniel Coaches is with the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, part of the Heritage Foundation. His work available at heritage.org. We thank you for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on today. And a reminder, be sure to subscribe to this and, of course, all of C-SPAN's podcasts so you never miss an episode. And you can follow our coverage on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.